0: All right, so we've been doing the book of James. We started last week, in, uh, or before last, we were in James 4. And we talked a little bit about, uh, well, we talked a lot a bit, about um, kind of priorities and evaluating our own heart. James calls us to do that a lot. And so in James 4, at the beginning, uh, we kind of went through this process of saying, from this scripture in verses 1 through 5, can, he challenges us to evaluate our priorities, to evaluate our affections, and to evaluate our value, how we view ourselves in, in light of how God truly views us. And at the end of that, in, towards the end of that uh, chapter, um, it goes into what, what he is calling us to do. And it talks about submitting to God and drawing near to God. And uh, what, what I've realized is a lot of us, probably most of us, uh, we really don't know what that means. We have an idea of what that should entail, but do we really understand what it means to submit ourselves and to draw near to God? And so that's something I want to talk about today. It's kind of a summary of our conversation over the last, for quite a while, speaking about the church and the book of Acts and even Jesus' teaching and his life in John 4. It's kind of a culmination of that that I think we need to go into prior to moving on uh, to, our, to our next study. Um, and that's what we're going to do. Before we do that, um, some of you guys... I feel a little bit straighter right now, but some of you guys know that I have a really bad back. I've always had one. In fact, it was my my uh, Caleb, our youngest, was staying the night at a friend's house, night before last, and they were laughing about it uh, because Caleb had told, my eight-year-old had told uh, the, uh, his friend's parents that um, his back was hurting. And uh, he, uh, they said, oh, I'm sorry that your back is hurting. He goes, yeah, it's genetics. It usually kicks in. He's... <laughs> He says it usually kicks in around when you're 30, and then from there. But it's really true. We've got bad backs in our family, and I'm kind of, I'm really, I'm dumb about it. You know, when you're really injured, and you shouldn't do things, but you do, because, you know, I'm tougher than this, whatever. You know, you try and do that. Well, um, I have three disc issues. One, I have a torn disc. The other, I have a herniated disc. And another disc is what they call an extrusion which means that it's herniated with a piece of the disc tissue sticking out about six millimeters into my spinal column. And so I'm not saying this to, oh, can everybody pray for me now or whatever. Well, that would be nice. But, um, so what happens is that, ex- that extrusion pushes up against a nerve. And whenever I just get off a little bit, it's pushing it out so that if I move wrong, it'll pinch that nerve, swell up, and then the pain begins, right? It takes a couple of days of ice and whatever to get over this. Well, I did this yesterday. I, I was stupid. I shouldn't have been as active as I was. And I, and I heard it. And I was on ice and everything um, uh, yesterday, trying to keep the swelling down so it wouldn't. But it tweaked it pretty good. And I could feel it. And about, well, at 3.10 last night, um, my back muscles had decided they were tired of my, my, my back, uh, the, the bone. And they just decided to lock down on me. Okay? Now, so... The worst thing that happens is when your muscles contract and it compresses your spinal cord so that it pinches down on that nerves and, and stays, you know, truly the most excruciating pain I've ever had in my life. And it kept happening over and over and over. I thought, I mean, I thought I was just, I thought I was going to die. I mean, it was just brutal. And, and I sat there and I was thinking, okay, which one is it? Ice or heat? What am I supposed to do right now? Am I supposed to do ice or heat? And everyone knows you're supposed to do exactly. So I'm sitting there and I'm feeling like Indiana Jones, you know, going for the Holy Grail. And, the, and the, the one guy gets up there and he's talking to the old knight. And there's all these, there's all these grails to choose from. And he chose one and he drank out of it. And he just remembered just his face went crazy and down to skeleton bones and poof, he was dead into a... And the knight looked at him and he goes, he has chosen poorly. (laughs) So so last night at 310, Jen went down to my instruction and got me some ice. And I chose poorly. Um, It was really interesting because the second that ice hit there, it locked up and it would not, it would not let go. But then fortunately, um, I'm just like you and I have all kinds of prescription drugs from all kinds of people in my cabinet. And... (laughs) And we found something. We found something that you know. It, from there, it was all downhill. Um, I, did we record that? Should I? Here, here's what I was thinking about that. There, there is a, there is a right. There is a right motive. My motive in trying to choose ice or heat. My motive was to relieve pain, to relieve pressure, to do what my muscles wanted it to, me to do, to help. You know, leave this tension or whatever it was. And, and I realized that there's a right motive, but then there is also a wrong choice or a wrong thing. There can be a right motive. You want to do the right thing, the right motive, but then there's, you ch- may choose the wrong thing to do. And I was thinking like, it's really interesting because us in the church as, as uh, Christ followers, uh, one of our greatest dangers is, is the exact opposite of that, is that there, there is a right there is a right thing that many of us are aware of, and we can check the boxes in our faith journey, right? Study the Bible, pray, go to church. We can do all the right things, but the problem really comes when we do it for the, right, for the wrong reasons or the wrong motives. And I think this is very important. I think this is a huge issue in the church today because when we, when we come at things for the wrong motive, what happens is, is we do not accomplish what we set out to accomplish, and I think each one of us has some kind of an expectation of what we hope to experience in our faith journey. Some of us uh, come in, uh, um, you know, maybe to please a, a, a spouse or a friend. Or maybe you're at that place in life where you just think like, well, I've tried everything else. Maybe I'll just try this. Or or maybe um, it's out of guilt. You grew up just guilty before God and you don't understand His grace or whatever. And just, there's different reasons. That I think... I think many times as a youth, I remember going, trying to pursue church, the, what seemed to be the right thing or the wrong method just to please my parents. And the reality is at one point or another, we have to come to this place where our motive is uh, what God wants of us. Because we can't, we can't, can't out-succeed or out-perform God. I don't, there's nothing you and I can do in our faith where God's going to go, wow, didn't see that coming. Well, you really glad you did that for me because I could have done that on my own, you know? And God has made it very clear that he does not see things as we see things. That he He measures the heart. Uh, that there's kind of this different way that we measure uh, s- success. And, and we need to think about uh, these kinds of things. And here's why I think it's very important. I was reading in, in Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23. We don't have it, but um, Jesus is teaching and he's warning Christians He's warning of people of faith who are doing everything they think they're supposed to do. They're going to every prayer meeting they're doing all this stuff. And, and Jesus, Jesus said this, essentially, he said, you know what's going to happen? He said, there's going to be a time when, when men stand before God and, and those men are going to be pastors and church leaders and people who have done all this great stuff. And he says they're going to stand before God and say, God, I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. The equivalent to that for us today is God, you know, I worked uh, on the greeter team. Uh, God, I went down and, you know, did whatever, all these things. He says, I did all this stuff for you, God. But God is going to reply to them, says, apart from me, for I do not know you. And that um, that should set us back a little bit and go, "Okay, wait a minute. Uh, scripture tells us over and over, look in Matthew 25 where he's talking about those who served those in need and uh, those who were hungry, did you feed them? Those who were uh, uh, homeless, did you shelter them? Those who were in prison, did you visit them? All these things, Jesus connects with uh, what's going to happen when we stand before God one day. All right. And so we have to start from this foundation of understanding that we can do everything that we think we're supposed to do and if we don't check our motives and do it the right motives chasing after the right things, we could completely miss it. And then you know what happens? Your faith experience becomes powerless. And you're like, well, where's God in that? I don't see, why isn't he changing me here? And why is why don't I, I leave church feeling this way? Or how come I still struggle with this in my life? Where's God in all of this? I can promise you, if our motives are off and we're not seeking the path that he has called us to, it will fall short of your expectations. And then we back up and the danger then is going... Is this even real? And so, as we look at this one part from James 4, um, I really want us to to dig into what it means to submit. So here's the scripture, James 4, verse 7 through 10. We read it last week. We taught an intro to it last week. I want to look at it, and then I want to give you three just very important things I want us to consider today. He, He writes this, it says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and here's a promise, and he will flee. Another thing he calls us to do, it says, come near to God. And another promise, he says, and he will come near to you. He will draw near to you. Then it begins to tell us how, what we need to be doing. And it says, wash your hands, you sinners. So not only are we acknowledging that we've got some dirt, we've got some junk, we've got some things in our lives that's not pure before God, but that we also need to acknowledge that that makes us a sinner. And that we need to acknowledge that there's some, you know, there's some some dirt on our hands. So it says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. There's something going on in our heart. And then it says, you double-minded. So he's connecting something. There's this connection between what's going on in our heart and how transformation happens in our heart. Something, he's connecting that with something that goes on in our brain. All right, so... And then he goes on and he says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Do you remember where we heard the, that, that word mourn? Do you remember that recently? When we studied the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Do you remember what he said we are mourning? Anyone? He's talking about mourning our sin. I also think when we are broken... And we're in a place of mourning that he is also our refuge. I think there's, that could be encapsulated there. But he's walking us through the gospel in Matthew 5. And, and, he, and he says, first of all, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize our spiritual poverty without Christ, that we need Christ. And then he goes, blessed are those who mourn. Because he's saying that we have this understanding of what sin does in our lives. What it does um, in how we live. What it does and how we prioritize our money, and how we steward our family, and how we live in relationship. All of these things are impacted, okay? But we need to grieve, mourn, and wail those things, and then it says change your laughter to mourning, and your joy to gloom. The Bible says, the joy of the Lord is my strength, so why do we need to do this? Because there's this process He's walking us through. If we claim to be followers of Christ, but are our our sin or the things that we mess up on i'm not saying we have to be perfect but if the things that we keep messing up on if it never bothers us to the point where we're convicted or that we mourn that sin there's something out of line and it's an indicator of something bigger that maybe we're missing or at least an indicator of where we really are on our spiritual journey okay and remember he's calling us to evaluate our priorities our affection and our value Change your laughter morning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord. And then the final promise of this passage is, and he will lift you up. You know, there's a place when you get to that extreme poverty spiritually where you can't pull yourself up. You just got to embrace being at the bottom and allow God to pull you up. And I think that's sometimes why God allows us to hit the very bottom. Because then we're at the end of ourselves and we're like, God, I've tried everything, I can't do it. You know, there's something empowering about that. So this is what he's talking about. Um when you hear the word "submit," what do you think of? Anybody? What do you think of? Giving in, OK? Good. Putting someone above yourself. What else? Surrender, Good. I'm going to have some water because the drugs I took last night going be caught in mouth. What? I told you when we started this church, I was just going to be honest. So, okay, what else? Submit, when you hear submit. You know what I kind of think of? Um, I can't help but think of what it's a negative term. You know, especially in today, kind of postmodern skeptic thinking. I hear submit and I'm like, you make me submit, you know. Why do submit to you? Who do you think you are? Well, in this context, I'm God, not me, but he's God. So, you know, it's a little different. But I think of that sometimes negatively, I think, I, I think of submission as a, wives, submit to your husbands, you know? That kind of a deal comes to mind. But I, I need us to understand that when we're talking about submission here, what the, the, what the word really means is, is that we would, we would rearrange our priorities in the way we think. That we would rearrange to the point where we recognize who God is and how great he is. And we finally just rearrange the way we would do things and replace it with the way he would do things. All right, and then it's a commitment then to living in that arrangement, and so there's this mutual respect happening, uh, uh, recognizing that God is offering something that we cannot do for ourselves, and we humbly receive that, and that then our response back in relationship is to follow Him, and to live the life that He called us to. Jesus called it a command, Uh, again a negative connotation word. And yet his new command was to love. Um, so submission, it has a little bit of a different understanding than we might naturally go to. But it goes hand in hand, first of all. And I want to do this little progression. Submission goes hand in hand with commitment. right? You can write, write that in your outline. Submission goes along uh, with commitment. And it's a new kind uh, of commitment. And I just gave the definition for the first three points that I... That are just in the dictionary. And I really liked it because I think it explains what commitment. If we were to submit, it comes with, it goes hand in hand with with committing. To commit means to give in trust or in charge. And we're saying, okay, God, this is yours. To entrust for safekeeping. To commend, to consign custody up. Because you're recognizing that God is going to take better care of our lives, and our family, and our work, and our money, and our resources, and our giftings. He is going to be able to take care of that, steward that better than we can. All right, so it goes hand in hand uh, uh, in in this idea. And when I think about the old submission, I think that means just do it, don't think, right? Just act, don't think. This is a different thing. What, What we're being called to as Christians is, think and then recognize how much sense it makes and then do it because of that. He's, in, he's challenging us to engage our minds and to say, let's reason together. Doesn't this make sense? Submission so goes hand in hand with commitment. And then commitment to God requires a turning. It requires this turning that the scripture talks about. Come near to God and he will come near to you. But the turning is, is when we decide to wash our hands recognizing who we are not. You sinners is what it says. And, and the word usually we see in Scripture about this is the idea and the concept of repentance. You know the word repent just means to turn, like 180 degrees. It, it's not only do I recognize this is not the way I should be living, but I'm going to turn away from it, like it says, resist the devil, and then I'm going to move towards the things of God, okay? Uh, turn, defined, just says to cause to move around to move around on an axis or about a center. To reverse the position. And I love this one. To turn a page. I love that because it's like, it really is. It's like a new chapter in our lives. Where we could just turn the page and we can move forward. And that thing that we turn around, that axis is the gospel. It's the hope of Christ. It's this new covenant that we have forgiveness for everything because of Christ. Not because we earn it, but because there was enough grace. And even more grace as we read earlier in chapter four there's there's more grace it's amazing so it's a commitment to uh, to god requires turning and then the progression moves on and it says turning is the result of genuine conversion it's really funny how these words even conversion doesn't that just sound trying to are you trying to convert me well yeah i am but i don't mean it like that i think it's a good thing you know we, that we are we are converted towards something. Well, what does that mean? The definition, I love it again. A change in character, form, or function. This is the best sentence. A change of attitude, emotion, or viewpoint from one of indifference, disbelief, or even antagonism to one of acceptance and enthusiastic support. So it's talking about changing the way we feel about certain things. All right? Or what are the things we need to change how we feel about? What are the things that we need in our minds and our hearts to be converted towards? That's the question I think that this asks us. That James is answering when he says, Submit to God and His ways and to draw near to Him. And that's what we want to look at 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 this last point. But before we do, we have that scripture from Romans 12. And I think it's kind of this segue of this understanding of what's happening. Where Paul is writing the Christians in Rome. The Christians in Rome, those who are saved, he is writing this letter to clear up his theology and his doctrine to help them understand truly what he believes and what he's gonna teach. And he just got done talking about how God has grafted us into the branch. He's grafted Gentiles in, uh, uh, into this family. He's done this for us through the grace uh, of Christ. And, And then he says this, therefore, in light of that, he says, therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy, To offer your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And it says, do not conform any longer to the patterns of the world, but be transformed. All these words, the turning, the conversion, all this, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word renewing means to make new. It's literally saying to change your mind about something. Which is all the definitions that go along with commitment, turning, and conversion. To change your mind, and then it says, then, then, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So here's a thought, kind of a segue point there is that our faith journey is defined by how we respond to God's plan. He has this plan, He asks us to submit to and and how we respond, it, it, it requires a response. We, we just can't sit there in neutral and be indifferent, nor be in complete opposition or just going through the motions. But how we respond, how he calls us to respond, to submit, he calls us to draw near. And the question is, to what? I think there are three biblical conversions that we see throughout the Gospels. Throughout the Scripture, there's three really biblical uh, conversions of faith that we need to commit to, that God is calling us to. And I just... I really believe if we fall short of any of those, we're going to fall short of the fullness of what God wants to do in our lives and through us, okay? And so I want to give you these. You can write them in and then we'll go back through. The first one is a conversion to Christ, where, where we change our mind about who Jesus really is and his word, his gospel, his truth. The second one is to his body. And when we talk about the body of Christ, we're speaking of the church. And we'll define what that means here in a minute. What is the church? And then the last one is a conversion to his mission, what he was about. So let's go back to the salvation, to Christ. The idea of being converted or having a conversion, understanding uh, of who Christ is. And this is important, but here's the problem. Here's the wrong motive part. For years, I believe we have had a mentality about talking about conversion to Christ. That we, I think the church, the church leaders have done this in error. We have sold Christ like we would sell fire insurance. And, and that we would just say, hey, your life's jacked up. You, you feel bad about yourself. You need something more. Hey, accept Jesus. Just, just ask Jesus in your heart in a certain way and everything's going to be awesome. And you get to go to heaven. So we have fire insurance. And a lot of people, there's a lot of people out there who's like, hey, I'm not really sure I believe in this Jesus dude, but if all I got to do is pray and then in case I'm wrong and I get to heaven, I'm going to be good. It's pretty worth it. I mean, the return on that investment is pretty good. If all I got to do is say a prayer and I'm safe. Uh, The truth is a lot of us live our lives as if that's how we receive Christ. That it's over there, that we receive Christ and that's it. And and then we go through life, experience this, this uninspired and a life with no power and and you feel all alone, and, and and you wonder why in the world. And I think it's that, that's something that happens when we leave it simply at the conversion of Christ. We we have, uh, as you look at Scripture, it shows out of First John five thirteen where John is writing, and it's very specific. He he's talking about what it means to be a Christ follower, and then he goes on and he says, "I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know." that you have eternal life. I believe with all my heart that God wants you to know and have the confidence that you have eternal life. Because I think if you don't have that confidence, you're going to live most of your life wondering if you're really saved. Um, And it's going to keep you from thinking about what's next in my spiritual journey. I think Satan can keep us very distracted on us selfishly. Okay, what about me? What about me? What about me? Is this real? Is this true? I'm going to spend my life trying to prove myself to God instead of moving on to what he's called us to do. And we're going to doubt, we're going to doubt, we're going to doubt. But scripture tells us clearly that he wants us to know. He wants us to nail, nail that down have that confidence. And we've talked about this a lot recently. Um, that it takes that acknowledgement that we can't do it on our own. That confession that Christ is the son of God. The belief in his resurrection. And scripture says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Did that conversion point. Now here's what I believe is really confusing about this for a lot of us. I'm gonna spend most of our time here and we'll kind of rip through the last parts. I've heard so many evangelists and speakers growing up as a, as a teenager and youth conferences and camps and things like that, guys who would say, if you don't know the day, the time, the hour that you accepted Christ, then you're not saved and you need to do it now. I've heard them say that over and over and over and I, I believe that. And I thought, man, which of the 300 times I asked Jesus to come into my heart did it really count? So I struggled with that for a very long time. And then recently, um, I've kind of challenged in my own mind um, and kind of pulled away from the cultural church wrappings that I grew up with and said, God, what, what? how do we really know? Scripture talks about fruit all over the place and a willingness to submit and that there will be evidences in our life. So we say all these things so that we can really go, okay, let's start putting the evaluation grid on our own life and go, okay, Um, How do we really know? But here's something I have found that I I realize I do believe there's a moment of salvation. There's a point in time where we really meant it or we received that. And we need to understand that salvation is this process where at one point God declares you holy. Even in all your junk, he declares you forgiven. He declares me forgiven for all of that. And we are uh, qualitatively considered righteous in God's eyes. That's good news, all right? But I think that there is also this process that happens uh, along the journey. It's why Paul says, I continue to work out my salvation with much fear and trembling. That there's this journey that happens that is a part of that. And somewhere along that journey, um, that, that conversion became a reality. And so some of you could go, oh yeah, I was seven years old. I was at VBS and I remember to this day, I remember what it was like. Uh, although, you know, it maybe took me 20 years to come back to it. I remember that day and it was very real for me. Maybe that's a gift God has given you that that was a day that you can remember that that's something that happened very, very real. But I know a ton of people who they go through and they live their life. Somehow they got reengaged in church or in faith in a relationship or whatever. And all of a sudden they look up one day and they go, I'm a new person. I've been made new in Christ. I'm renewed. I feel reconciled back to God. And I can't even go back and say when that happened. Now, I believe there's a point when that happened, but there's a different point sometimes when we realize that that happens. All right? And I think those people many times struggle more than anybody with, am I really saved? But you're made new, so how can you argue with a work of the Spirit that only God can do? So I'm going to give you two, these two blanks under conversion to Christ is instant conversion and process conversion. Now, don't freak out, those of you who are theologically minded. I am not saying that there is this thing you have to work through in order for this process to happen where you, but what I'm saying is this, some of us hear it, see it, receive it, boom, it happens and whether or not we see fruit right then or down the road, there's also another study on that, how that happens, surrendering lordship and presenting our life to Christ. But there's also those who absorb that. They learn and they learn and they learn and they're going through this process and they receive it in their heart and their minds, maybe even words to God, but they see the transformation and it's really a process. But at one point in there, they came to faith. Um, I just believe with all my heart that that um, that happens and that there's a lot of Christians out there who struggle with their faith because they can't just say this was a day and this is the moment. Let me tell you something. If we confess the name of Christ, we believe in him and we believe we can't do it on our own and, and we surrender that, I believe with all my heart that God has forgiven you. All right? I hope I can offer that confidence to you uh, today. Um, to Christ, second to his body. I love the scripture, Matthew 16. Jesus said, On this rock I will build my church, and then the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. A couple of things he's telling us here from the scripture. The first is that the church is his. He says, my church. The church is his, and he builds it. We do not. If you are a Christ follower, you are a part of the church. If you are a Christian, you are a part of the church. Whether you go to church or not, whether you think the church is a good thing or not, I think about membership in church. Really, you become a member of the church when you become a Christian. Now, you may be, you know, that rowdy uncle at the family reunion that everybody is like, oh, there's uncle so-and-so causing trouble again, you know. Or you might be the guy that organized it and everybody loves and is, but we're all a part of the body of Christ. And it's bigger than just A and C. It's it's, it's the church. Okay, so I, I want us to understand that you are a part of it, whether you want to be or not. And I understand there are times when you just don't want to be because sometimes church, we mess things up because we get involved, you know? But you need to understand that you're a part of it. And so as people look at the church, if we are Christians, if we are believers, we are included in the equation of how they look at and where we really see the church and, and where it is. And we need to understand that, first of all, that it's his and that he builds it. Second, that our role, he says, is kingdom and holding loosely. He says, he says I'm going to build my church, and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. That's what he said. He said, and then whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. So what he's saying is, as the church, my church, you have the key to whether or not you're going to hold on to everything and make it about you. You have, the, you have the choice whether or not you're going to hold on to all your traditions that you like or the things that you want or that I want. We have the opportunity to do that, or we have the opportunity to unlock it and release it and say, God, this is yours. we want to live for your kingdom. And the scripture tells us clearly that it has eternal impact. That whatever we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So what we're reminded of here is that what we do now impacts the not yet. That's that last point there. <clears throat> so scripture has called us clearly, not just to faith, to have fire insurance for heaven one day, but also Jesus is calling us to a conversion to change our mind the way we think about the body of Christ's church. I love it when I hear someone talk And maybe they're new to A&C and they say, man, I really like your church. I like how you guys did this and this and this. And I love it when they go, you know, I really like our church. I like the way we do this. There's something that has changed. And when we look at that definition, even back to what it means to conversion, it's a change from indifference or even disbelief or even antagonism to one of acceptance and enthusiastic support. We are called to conversion to his body, to the church. Okay, it's a part of the journey. In submitting to him and drawing near to him. Drawing near to Christ, to his body, and then to his mission. We talk about it all the time. Second Corinthians 5, I love this. I love all the letters that Paul wrote because they're to, to, they're to young church plants. I mean, it's like, it could be us, you know? And Paul is writing this letter to them. And he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ... Saved in a part of the body. He is a new creation. You're turning the page. The old is gone and the new has come. And he says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. That at once we were with God, sin broke that up. And then because of Christ, he brought us back together. He reconciled us back. And then it says this, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That word ministry means mission. All right? Um, And then he goes on, it says um, that God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against him, and he has committed to place order. He has committed to us, to you and me. Now it calls it the message of reconciliation. That message is, is the word, and it's embodying an idea of the word, this message. So he's saying not only are we called to him, not only are we called to the church, but we are also called to the deed and the word of his mission.